Is Georgia a do or die state for Republicans? It's over if you don't win Georgia. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein. And I'm Patricia Murphy, and we are two of the political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal Constitution. If you're just joining us for the first time, welcome, and be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Patricia and producer Shaney B, uh, apologies in advance. There might, I might have to uh, jump off for a minute or two. We are anxiously awaiting the news of my daughter, my oldest daughter's second round of playoff tennis. Uh, <laughs> doing this experience, I've realized how different my wife and I are. On Tuesday, I was at the tennis match. I was literally FaceTiming like the entire set so that she could watch it from her office. And then here I am, like I'm texting my wife. I'm calling her, update, give me an update. Nothing, nothing at all. <laughs> She's not as connected as, as I am to all this. You're just you're just reporting the facts, no matter where, no matter who your audience is. And she's probably a lot more like in in the zone right now, cheering on her daughter. Whereas I'm, she's like definitely more of a tennis mom. Um, whereas <laughs> I played baseball, I played other sports. I like tennis and all, but she's she's more in tune with this. <laughs> I hear you. Well, I've got a baseball game to run to right after this, so we're in the same mode, sport nice. youth sports mode, which is great. And I'm back in the car. Um, I'm in downtown Duluth this time, not for. Uh, any news coverage event. I'm speaking uh, about my book to a group at the at the Gwinnett County Library right after this. So I am going to enjoy the, the beautiful town square right after we're done with the podcast. Coming up in today's episode, we're going to speak about why former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie says Georgia is a must win for Republicans. I don't think he's alone there. We're going to discuss what we've learned about Herschel Walker since the 2022 campaign and Marjorie Taylor Greene's rebuke by a fellow Republican in Congress. Plus, we're going to answer your questions for the listener mailbag, and we'll have our who's up and who's down for the week. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Patricia, I don't think this comes as a huge shock, but it is significant nonetheless. This is former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, no fan of Donald Trump, also a former presidential contender, on the Ruthless podcast earlier this week. It's over if you don't win Georgia. I mean, look, I know there's a way that you can get to 270 without Georgia as a Republican, <laughs> but... If you win those other states, you would have won Georgia. Right. Right. So it's because there's a lot of similar dynamics. And so, you know, to me, Georgia is the very best example. We already know Georgia is going to be one of the premier, if not the premier battleground state on the 2024 map. We know that both both parties are putting Georgia as one of the key three or four, you know, uh, steps to get to that 270 electoral college votes. Um, but it, it is interesting hearing from someone like Chris Christie, uh, an ardent ally of Governor Brian Kemp, a critic of Donald Trump, who's saying, look, Democrats can afford to lose Georgia. Republicans can't. Yes, exactly. And he said, and this is true, he said there is a 
path technically without Georgia. 16 electoral votes, you could make that up somewhere. But Georgia has become the kind of battleground state that is also um, a barometer of where else you're going to do well. So if you do well in a state like Georgia, you can expect to do extremely well in other battleground states like uh, Michigan, Wisconsin. You should certainly have already uh, tied up Virginia and uh, North Carolina would be very much within your sight. So there's this bucket of of swingy battleground states. It doesn't mean they don't lean red or lean blue in one way or another, but Georgia has the same dynamics of a large rural population, a large uh, urban population, um, kind of those ring of suburban voters who always seem to be up for grabs. Um, Those are the dynamics that drive Georgia. So if you're doing well in Georgia, you will more than likely win the election. If you are losing Georgia, you're probably losing some other states as well. So that's what Chris Christie said. It's also new um, for us, you know, new within the last several years that Georgia is not just worth talking about, but worth spending money on, worth fighting for, worth investing in. Republicans used to be able to take this state mostly for granted. Um, That is not the case anymore. Democrats used to write it off. Again, absolutely not the case anymore. So it's a classic battleground state. The issue set is similar to other battleground states. Again, those dynamics are very similar. And so I completely agree with Chris Christie. The road to the White House definitely runs through Georgia. Yeah, when I heard him saying that too, I was thinking of Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, those sort of upper Midwest um, swingy states. Minnesota stayed in the blue column, but is, is very close, right? Michigan and Wisconsin certainly swing states. I was thinking of those states because, yeah, it's hard to see those states go- going in uh, the red column if Georgia is in the blue column, right? So that is where a lot of the battleground uh, politics would go to. Pennsylvania to a degree, too. I could see Pennsylvania going either way. Pennsylvania was right there with Georgia in 2020 being one of the last states to be called in that election. But so goes Georgia. So goes a lot of other states. Uh, North Carolina is a little further out there as a target for Democrats, but it could certainly be in play depending on uh, who the Republican nominee is and where the electoral college is, um, where the electorate is, I should say. But I also want to talk about something else Chris Christie said. Let's play the second part of his remarks about Georgia on the Ruthless podcast. I was at RGA that November, in November of 21, and I had three guys who are consultants in Georgia, who I have a lot of respect for, who said to me, Governor, we love you. You're way out on a limb for Kemp here. He cannot win the primary. Purdue is going to beat him easily in the primary. It's over. Mm -hmm. And I said to them, I love you guys, but you know what? None of the three have ever been governor. I have. And I know what an incumbent governor can do when he's smart and he's motivated to shape a race for re-election. Well, that was definitely. And Brian Kemp was masterful. That was Chris Christie talking about the Kemp effect. And he wasn't necessarily talking about Kemp's call that we talked about earlier this week uh, to move on from Trump because Chris Christie's right there with him. But he is talking about Georgia as this particularly dynamic state, one that can reject Trump, but also embrace Brian Kemp. And Chris Christie was out there. He was on the campaign trail for, for Brian Kemp. He was one of those establishment Republicans who were flocking to Kemp's banner. But he was out there really early. And his New Year prediction in late 20, I think it was late 2021 um, on ABC was saying that Brian Kemp would win not just the primary, but also the general. And he was roundly mocked 
by, uh, you know, by folks, including, he said, on that show, George Stephanopoulos, the ABC anchor, who said on off air to him, apparently, that he was crazy for thinking Kemp had a chance. Uh, obviously, he had that prediction uh, held forth. It was vindicated. But it does go to show you, Patricia, how not so long ago, those three unnamed strategists, and we're not sure, sh- I have an idea who they are, but we're not quite sure who they are, Chris Christie isn't saying, but those three strategists weren't on a limb. There was even Kemp supporters who were privately agonizing over his chances in that 2022 primary against David Perdue, let alone a general election matchup against Stacey Abrams. Oh, yeah. And there were some Kemp supporters who were publicly agonizing over it. Incredibly angry that David Perdue had decided to get into that race. Extremely angry that Donald Trump had goaded him into it, essentially, and set up this dynamic where Kemp was running not just against Democrats, but against Donald Trump. And at the beginning of 2022, that looked like an almost impossible mountain to climb. Honestly, even not, even we were saying, well, how do you get through that primary and then stay um, viable for a general election, especially against a really strong general election opponent like Stacey Abrams? Um, but uh, I think the numbers that Kemp posted, nobody would have predicted those in January of 2022. And um, so that is why after he comes through his primary against Purdue and, and Trump, it's basically the same person on the other side uh, with a more than 50 point win and then turns around and wins the general election by more than seven points. That's why Christie and other Republicans are saying you've got to pay attention to the example that Brian Kemp set in Georgia. That's how you do it. Um, now, is it really transferable? I don't know. Um, Kemp was one of the few Republicans in the country who also um, needed to stand up to Donald Trump in 2020 in that post-election chaos. And he got a lot of goodwill with independent voters for how he handled that situation. I think that was a big part of his appeal to Democrats, uh, moderate Democrats, excuse me, to some Democrats and certainly independent voters um, when it came around to that general election, but just absolutely just demolished David Perdue in particular, who previously had been a really popular Republican figure, um, kind of a statesman in Georgia. So Kemp really showed them how it was done. And I wrote a column that said uh, something to similar effect. If people want to win in Georgia, Brian Kemp's got the playbook for Republicans. Absolutely. Um, And if they want to win in Georgia and they're Democrats, take a look at what Raphael Warnock did. They both ran their own kinds of campaigns that were not so deeply partisan. They were plenty progressive and plenty conservative for their bases. But when it came to the way they talked, the way they interacted with voters, the way they approached the entire cycle, it was just a little bit outside of the box. And that's what it has to be in a battleground state like Georgia right now. Yeah, candidates who could claim the center. Um, and I, I, Governor Kemp would never want to hear me say this, but his role in this election reminds me a lot of Stacey Abrams' role in 2020, where Stacey Abrams <laughs> became her party's chief advocate for carrying for Democrats carrying Georgia. Um, you know, she was the the highest profile Democrat in, in the state at the time. This was before. This was as. Senators Warnock and Asa for running for office. So she was sort of the de facto party leader. Well, now it's Governor Kemp and Governor Kemp is now the one making this pledge that he will help deliver Georgia for Republicans if, you know, but he's also warning them, got to focus on the future, can't focus on the past, not a thinly veiled, you know, uh, but not hard to discern hit at Donald Trump. And it goes back to the first segment of the show is 
Republicans need Georgia, right? If they lose Georgia, odds are they're losing all those other swing states as well that are that could be even closer than Georgia. So if they if they lose Georgia, it means the pendulum has really swung to Joe Biden's favor again. And we're going to start seeing those visits. We've already had DeSantis visit. We've had Nikki Haley come and uh, you know raise some money, but not have a big public event. But we're going to start seeing more, and it'll be really. Really interesting to see the reception that Donald Trump does get here, because as we talked about in the last show, he's up 50-30 in uh, the UGA poll. He's up similarly in some some other polls we've seen that are private and and um, and public. Maybe not 20 points, but he has a he has a hefty advantage. But we'll see what the what the reception for his him is. And as we talked about after DeSantis's visit, Patricia, we were both there. There's a lot of Republican officials that who were openly supportive of the Santas, the folks you might not, I was somewhat surprised to see out there, you know, with a competitive primary underway with the Santas being the number one target for Trump. We haven't had any really high profile endorsements yet from leading Republicans. I think there are a lot of folks are like Governor Kemp who say they have an open mind about what's to come, but it'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. Absolutely. And once we start to see more of those candidates, we're going to, you know, really find out what the X factor is for them that sort of how are they as candidates? Candidate quality, I think, is easy to overlook when we're looking at polls and we're looking at um, endorsements and money raised. But some people are just not good candidates. They just mm-hmm. don't connect. Um, Donald Trump has come out just blazing against Ron DeSantis. And he has an ad about DeSantis for this um, kind of blind sourced item about a time he was on a jet with his staff and ate pudding with his fingers. And that is just just all over the ad that Donald Trump has. And that's the kind of ad that I think works. It just is so effective with this very strange detail. Um, and so we'll, we don't know how all these people are going to ha- hold up when it comes to um, getting attacked by Trump, getting those ads run against them. And how would, how do they respond about Trump? Are they going to be honest and forthright about how they really feel about him? Are they going to kind of soft pedal it? Um, I think all of that's going to really matter to voters and how they assess these candidates. So we're just barely starting to kick the tires on these guys. Patricia, one more question for you before we hit break. I was out at dinner with some national reporter friends who seemed convinced that Governor Kemp's comments over the weekend were a sign that he's going to run for president. They're like, how, you know, how are you not taking that as a signal? I told them I was I was still very skeptical of that line, you know, that set aside the fact that Governor Kemp himself has said he's not planning to run for president at all, because I know folks can go back on that. And he still hasn't taken any of the those major steps to run. He's not, we're not seeing him travel the battleground states. And yet, and yet same time, he is positioning himself just in case, right. To be, if other candidates fall flat, he could be sort of a draft Kemp type candidate, um, as a alternative to Donald Trump sort of, uh, you know, break the glass just in case scenario, emergency, <laughs> you know, what, what's it, how do I phrase that? It's emergency just in case, break this glass, that kind of candidate. <laughs> Yes, something an oxygen mask, I guess you might call it. Um, uh, Yeah, he's doing he's taking the steps he needs to take in order to be involved in the presidential election. He's not taking the steps right now in order to be at the front of the presidential election. He does not have 
the kind of staff, does not have the outreach, does not have the national fundraising network, um, has never been to Iowa. Uh, these are these are just the basics that you have. Ron DeSantis right now has a larger campaign staff when you look at his um, the super PAC that's being formed to support him uh, here in Georgia. That super PAC staff is larger than any campaign staff that Brian Kemp has. So it's um, it's he does not have a secret plan right now that he is um, he's not concocting this machine to unveil suddenly and say, and now I'm running for president. But yes, I do think he's keeping his options open. I think he's keeping himself in the mix and out there. Um, Certainly, he could be talked about as a vice presidential nominee or candidate with somebody who's running. I think that would be a natural. And uh, yes, I do think that if 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 something cataclysmic happens, if if um, if nobody is running in a way that is putting a dent in Trump's momentum and Donald Trump is staying Donald Trump, I do think there's an outside chance that Kemp could take a hard look at what to do next. It does raise the, it raised, you know, step after step after step of all these dominoes fell. It raised the obvious question of, would he give up the governorship to do that? Um, leave it to Burt Jones to rise to become the governor because that's what happens uh, when a when a governor leaves office, the lieutenant governor. You know, all of those things are those are <laughs> legitimate hard yeah. questions to answer. So um, you skip to the end of that scenario, and it's it's hard to imagine. But everything's hard to imagine in politics these days, and and it doesn't keep any of it from happening. Good point, Patricia. This is politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy. We're also two of the authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes in the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts and get three months of unlimited digital access for less than a buck. Yes, three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast, so you always know what's really going on. Okay, Patricia, this next segment is inspired by one of the questions we got last week. It was a very good question, a very simple question. What, what has happened to Herschel Walker? Where is he now after the 2022 defeat? So we we answered as best as, as we knew. We haven't really heard from him. He's been very... He's, he's not been very active on social media, the like, but it, you know what? I was inspired. I said, you know what? Let's, let's write a bigger story. Let's, let's do a little bit more digging. And so I talked to uh, a few dozen people. I called a half dozen of his former aides. I looked at some records. I looked at the social media and I'll just read you some of the quotes from the, on the record quotes 
from some of his his allies and deputies. I'm short on details. I have not heard anything from him or his former campaign. I have not spoken with Herschel, but always wish him the best. Uh, those are all from very close allies of him. And then I, I talked about a half dozen of them, but what I heard from one of them, um, not on the record, but on background, um, which I don't think got into the story was, I haven't talked to him and I don't want to. <laughs> so um, there is, we, we don't think he's back in Texas. He might be back in Texas, but records show that he no longer lists his Dallas area home as his primary residence. He can no longer get homestead exemption there. Um, he sent in his Atlanta home. This is actually owned by his wife, Julie Blanchard. So, you know, we, we have reason to believe he's still at least spending significant time in Atlanta, but who knows? The only One of the only public events he's been at was the Horatio Alger Association's Awards, to which his campaign donated $250,000, not not that long ago, a few weeks ago, actually. You're allowed to give your campaign cash to charitable organizations even after you've lost. So he dipped into his campaign account of that. He was at a, he, he was seen at a state farm office, I guess, making the rounds there not that long ago. But very, very little public appearances, very few social media posts. One of his latest posts was, you know, Second Amendment rights, something like, like that but not really out there. Certainly a contrast from what we saw the two most recent Republican candidates for U.S. Senate who lost do, which is Kelly Leffler started the Greater Georgia Voter Advocacy Group. And David Perdue, of course, ran for governor after his defeat. So uh, we're not seeing any concrete steps for him to run for office again, Patricia. No. And you know, just as quickly as he got into politics, it feels like he has just as quickly disappeared from the scene. I think candidates take to one of two paths. You know, one of them is what Kelly Loeffler has done, which is to um, stay engaged, to pick up the phone and start making phone calls. If you want to remain in politics, if you want to stay in the mix, um, it requires uh, showing up and I mean, man, Kelly Leffler shows up just about every day. She's still giving money. She has uh, stood up this organization. She's supporting um, local candidates, state Senate candidates. These are all people who now officially owe her a big fat favor if she ever runs for something else uh, again in the future. She's also, I think, kind of educating herself on the process. She got into politics so quickly. She never really learned the process of getting elected from the ground up. Um, This is taking care of that. David Perdue, on the other hand, yes, he did run for governor, but boy, he has been like Kaiser Sose ever since he lost the governor's (laughs) race. We have not. It's just like, he's like a whisper in the wind. Where did that guy go? You know, I think some of these people take these defeats so personally. It is so devastating. It's your face, your name, your reputation. Um, Herschel Walker's reputation was frankly, pristine before he got into this race. And that was one reason we did hear from people close to him who said they didn't want him to run for office because they worried that that would change, that that would change his ability to be in the public sphere, to be involved in charitable organizations, um, which he has still continued to support, of course. But uh, he took a huge hit in that Senate race, not just the fact that he lost, but the way that he lost and the way that that campaign was run left a lot of burned bridges. As you said, a lot of staff are saying, I don't even want to see him. That's that's uh, 
that's unusual to, to hear that from a staffer. It means something has gone terribly wrong. So Herschel Walker, is, it seems, I, I think it's actually wise for him to be laying low, sort of reorganize yourself and figure out what you want to do next. Um, I certainly don't blame him, but he sure has been just an absolute, uh, just mystery. We do not see him around Atlanta. I live in roughly the same neighborhood. I used to see him out quite a bit. And it's just, I haven't seen either him or his um, his wife ever since, since election night. And I'll add that there are plenty of Republicans who are a okay with not seeing him. I heard from after the story ran. I know we've we've been hearing from them plenty, but I heard it from even more who's saying, "Let's move on. We're ready." And an interesting one was Stephen Lawson, a former Kelly Leffler staffer who ran a pro Walker Super PAC called Thirty Four in Twenty Two. It got a lot of ink, got a lot of airtime over the campaign. Raised spent about $9 million promoting Herschel Walker. He said in as many words, I'll, I'll quote him, but he pretty much said it's time to move on. He said, quote, it's a battleground centered around a competition of ideas, of personal connection, and clearly articulating what you stand for and why. That's the playbook for winning statewide. I'm not sure it's going to change anytime soon. We all know one of Herschel's, he had, he had a lot of challenges, but one of his, one of his biggest was we, we did not, he could not clearly communicate his stances on a number of issues um, it, it might not have been the sole factor why he lost. There's plenty, you know, you've, we've written plenty. We've talked about plenty of the reasons why he lost, but that was one of them that it was really hard to hear where he was, even on, you know, policies and issues where Republicans were on the same page on, right? Where it was not a, it's not a controversy coming out. It was hard to hear where he was. It was hard to pin him down on a message. One other past candidate to compare him to, a past loser, if you will, um, John Ossoff, when he lost that House race in Georgia 6, he was the kind of candidate who got out there, ran his first race, didn't win, but he heard from Democrats the next day, you should run again. You should do this again. This was a tough hand for you. Give it another go. And so he did. Um, we did not hear that about Herschel Walker after this campaign. It was, uh, again, it was a lot of people saying, why did that ever happen in the first place? So I'd be surprised if he gets back involved in politics. I wouldn't be surprised if he if he kind of returns to the public eye. But this particular idea of him coming back into politics, I, I don't know that he wants that, but it does not seem like the Georgia Republicans, he needs to support him to do that. It, it doesn't seem like they want that. Yeah, on the Ossoff note, it's a perfect point because not long after Ossoff lost, it was very clear he was going to jump back into politics. And one of the first things he did was he made a beeline, not for, he was running for Congress in the suburbs. He made a beeline, not for the suburbs, but for uh, a North Georgia rural county. It was deep red where you talk to a small group of Democrats and kind of laid out a new vision. And to me, that was the uh, the beginning of the next phase. We certainly haven't seen that from Herschel Walker. Not saying it's not going to happen, uh, but we are saying he's been very silent and that there are plenty of Republicans who don't want to see that happen. But just a, let's shift to another Republican, Marjorie Taylor Greene. We don't like often to dwell on the, the you know, the, the latest controversy she's involved on because there's enough other shows that do. But uh, she was rebuked 
in Congress by a fellow Republican. Can you tell us a little about it? Yeah. So Marjorie Taylor Greene is a member of the House Oversight Committee. That means that that committee, um, now that Republicans are in charge, are conducting oversight over the Biden administration, bringing in um, cabinet secretaries, bringing in members of the administration, anybody they feel like is not living up to expectations in particular, anybody they plan on investigating. And somebody like um, Homeland Security Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, that is somebody who Marjorie Taylor Greene has already suggested be impeached. He is overseeing the immigration situation, overseeing the situation at the southern border, which is obviously a great concern to Republicans. So Mayorkas came in for a hearing, an oversight hearing, and um, got pointed questions from Republicans but got absolutely ripped by Marjorie Taylor Greene. And here is exactly what she said. How long are you going to continue this outrage, complete outrage, where China is poisoning America's children, poisoning our teenagers, poisoning our young people? How long are you going to let this go on? Congresswoman, let me assure you that we're not letting it go on. We are fighting this. No, I reclaim my time. You're a liar. You are letting this go on and the numbers prove it. Now, we can disagree, but we've gotten to the point of the language that we're using uh, is not the kind of language that historically we as members of this committee uh, we've used. Uh, Chair asked the uh, gentlelady if um, she wishes to seek unanimous consent to modify or withdraw her remarks. I will not withdraw my remarks because the facts show the proof. So in uh, making a ruling on this, uh, it's pretty clear that the rules state you can't impugn someone's uh, character. Uh, identifying or calling someone a liar is unacceptable in this committee. And I make the ruling that we strike those words. Patricia, when we thought that Marjorie Taylor Greene would be a headache for not just Democrats, but for Republicans, um, we're now seeing it in a different way because she was removed from all of her committees the last term. Now she has that seat on the committees. And it's clear because that the voice you heard last was the Republican chairman of that committee. So it's clear uh, that, that Republicans, too, are getting fed up with some of her antics. Yeah, getting fed up and not only moved to strike her words from the record, when you do that, when you have somebody's words taken down, that's a specific House procedure, it also means that they can no longer speak for the rest of the hearing. And so that was that Republican chairman saying, and I don't want to hear another word out of you. That was his decision to make, and he made it. Um, <laughs> interestingly, uh, Green was rebuked for those words against Mayorkas. She was not rebuked um, officially by the committee for something else that she said to a Democratic member of that committee, Eric Swalwell. Here's what she said. Mr. Secretary, do you believe that all of us have a responsibility to elevate our rhetoric and to denounce anti-Semitism and anti-police rhetoric in this country so that Jewish Americans and police officers can be safer? Congressman, I do. Thank you, and I yield back. The gentleman yields, and now I recognize the gentlelady from Georgia, Miss Green. That was quite entertaining from someone that had a sexual relationship with a Chinese spy, and everyone knows it. But I move to take her words down. Completely inappropriate. The chair uh, recognizes the gentlelady from Georgia and asks if she would like to retract those words. No, I will not. 
So welcome to Marjorie Taylor Greene's world. Um, to your point, Republicans are really the ones having to deal with this. Now, Greene was in this unusual situation where she had this point where she could have pivoted at the beginning of this Congress. Obviously, she was ostracized by Democrats when they were in charge. But after she reached out to Kevin McCarthy and um, really ingratiated herself to him when she supported him for speaker, he has stood by her every step of the way. And it really hit the reset button for her in a lot of ways. But the fact that she's continuing to um, be just a spectacle at these hearings. There's no other word for it. You know, the role of these members, hopefully, is to conduct oversight, find problems, and help to solve those problems. But in Marjorie Taylor Greene's world, the role is to say something so outlandish and offensive, you know you're going to get on the news that night, then you can uh, clip it, you can raise money off of it, you know that Donald Trump's going to see it on TV, you're owning the libs, you're owning the Republicans, you know, you're just owning everybody. So this is not productive, but it is Marjorie Taylor Greene's style. It's her approach. It's the way she wants to represent her constituents. And it's who Republicans have got now that they have brought her into their tent and put her on very powerful committees like the Oversight Committee. That is our all the time we have for Marjorie Taylor Greene this episode. (laughs) But look, it's, you know, it's a sideshow, but it's also an important show because she is one of the most prominent Republicans, not just in Georgia, but around the nation. And she's a legit potential running mate as well. We've been talking about Governor Kemp in that light. Well, Marjorie Taylor Greene is also um, for Donald Trump. Should he win the nomination again? We we have no idea if he'll pick her, but certainly she is going to be someone who we're, we're going to be talking about as a potential uh, running mate for Donald Trump moving forward. Okay, now it's time for one of our favorite segments, the listener mailbag. And you can now call the Politically Georgia podcast hotline anytime. Leave a question. And we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. The number is 770-810-5297. That's 770-810-5297. And producer Shaney B and his his growing group of interns cannot wait. Hey, but producer Shaney B, before yeah. I go into this, I did get an update from my wife. She, uh, my kid won her first match, lost her second, uh, but doubles won. So they, the whole team won. Uh, and my wife says the girl she was playing against was elite. So my kid's good. Uh, she'll be back. <laughs> she'll be back soon enough. She plays tennis like every day, but, uh, she narrowly lost her playoff match for anyone who's interested. <laughs> well, the you know, game. you, I, you did leave us on the edge of our seats I did. The, so at the I beginning of the podcast. So thank you for that update, and we look forward to more exciting matches and updates in the future. (laughs) So we got a couple of calls here to the hotline this week, and let's start off with David in Athens. He wants to ask about Wellstar coming to Augusta. I was wondering if y'all could talk a little bit about the Augusta Wellstar stuff with the hospital. I may be mistaken, but isn't Wellstar the company that just shut down the hospital in Atlanta? And if so, why are we trusting them to go into Augusta and take over things in Augusta. Um, I imagine there's a lot of overlap in the populations based on uh, all the charitable work Augusta University does down there. And so I'm just wondering, what is the reasoning behind this potential transfer and working together? And so, uh, yeah, if you could just talk about the details behind that and the reason behind that, I'd really appreciate it. David, what a good question. It's so complicated because you're right. 
at, at once, Wall Star is the biggest enemy of some politicians and also their best friend. Because yeah, Wall Star closed down its Atlanta facility, one of the last level one facility, trauma facilities in North Georgia, right before the November election. It was not great timing for Governor Kemp. It became uh, an instant campaign trail message from Stacey Abrams and other Democrats who, who used it to uh, further their calls for Republicans to expand Medicaid. But at the same time, Governor Kemp and his allies really wanted this potential merger with Augusta University's medical system to go through. Um, they're worried that basically Augusta University's healthcare system would be a giant red dot, red blotch on the state's balance sheets, and it would be a growing problem. And they went to great lengths to try to assure this deal went through uh, to the point of personally advocating Sonny Perdue, the chancellor of the higher education system, Trey Kilpatrick, the governor's chief of staff, uh, went and spoke to House Republicans shortly before the session ended and said, if House Republicans adopted a, uh, if, if they were going to go forward with a, uh, a push to deregulate hospitals, hospital systems, uh, we call it certificate of need, that the, med- that the Wellstar deal with AU could fall through and that could have great consequences for the state's budget. So uh, it's very complicated, but um, you know, sometimes you've, you've got to <laughs> make deals with, with uh, folks who you're not always aligned with. And I think in this situation, uh, there's a lot of Democrats too, who are very, very upset with Wallstar, uh, but also wanted to see uh, this certificate of need legislation not pass. And as well, they wanted to see this merger go through. So that, I hope that summed it up. Patricia, anything to add? I think, no, I think you pretty much got it. Um, Those were the exact questions, actually, that Republican lawmakers, uh, specifically Republican state senators, were asking um, at the end of this session, why should we trust AMC to be a partner to a hospital in Augusta when they just closed the same, um, or just closed a hospital in Atlanta. And there were not a lot of good answers, but you know, Greg, I think you pretty much summed up why the state feels like they need a partner out there in Augusta and they feel like Wellstar is the right partner. Are they the perfect partner? Obviously not because, uh, Wellstar has gotten wrapped up in all kinds of legislative fights with, uh, the Lieutenant governor in particular. Um, but they're the partner they feel like they need right now. And I think, if I remember correctly, the only potential partner, because if I recall correctly, no other major hospitals even uh, responded or even sought after this merger. So they were the only the only dancing partners left standing. And now, Patricia, it's time for Who's Up and Who's Down. Um, we always like to end on a high note. So, Patricia, who's your Who's Down for the week first? So my who's down for the week, Greg, is Fox News. They had a $787 million settlement against them issued from a court. There was this massive Dominion voting machines lawsuit against them. $787 million is no small change. Now, they did not have to issue an apology, but I do think that this size of this judgment should give Fox News a lot of concerns about what's waiting for them in a uh, another lawsuit from Smartmatic and a number of other legal challenges to Fox News and um, the role that they played in amplifying a lot of the lies that 
the lawyers for Donald Trump were telling after the 2020 elections, including about the elections here in Georgia, even when those Fox News hosts and Fox News leadership knew that those lies were not true. I would second that. I would also add Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, my who's down for the week, because despite Georgia being, you know, this place where Donald Trump has really struggled, he lost his election here in 2020. Most of the candidates he endorsed in 2022 went down in flames. Donald Trump still has 51% of, of, of support among likely Republican voters in the latest UGA poll, very far ahead of the closest competitor, who is Ron DeSantis, only at 30%. So I'd have to say Ron DeSantis being in a hole early on here, even in a state like Georgia, where Trump has faced some of his most severe setbacks. Ron DeSantis, my who's down for the week. Patricia, who's your who's up for the week? My who's up for the week? I don't think I've, this has not been my who's up maybe ever, but here it goes. Donald Trump is my who's up for the week here in Georgia. And it has a lot to do with your who's down for the week, uh, Ron DeSantis, Greg, because you look at the polling for Donald Trump and you look at the field that's out there challenging him. And it's just very hard to see, barring imprisonment, that Donald Trump doesn't get this nomination again. I don't know what stops his momentum. Um, also, it's very early. These polls could be, um, it's very hard to poll that GOP electorate state by state. But uh, we continue to hear from those Trump voters who still really, really believe him and like him. And even in a head-to-head against a Democrat, even people who don't like him might vote for him this time around. So he is incredibly resilient despite every indication that he should be sinking like a rock otherwise and shouldn't even be running for president again. Um, he is. And so far, the field against him does not, still does not know how to run against him. And um, that's a dynamic that just hasn't changed. So Donald Trump is, you are my who's up this week. He has definitely reminded us uh, over the last couple of weeks why he is the presumptive Republican frontrunner. My who's up for the week, Patricia, is another one we've, I've never said before, but a little bit more off the beaten path. The Horatio Alger Foundation, uh, because Herschel Walker ended his campaign with about $5 million in cash, and the campaign finance law lets you give that cash to political supporters and charitable groups as long as it doesn't personally benefit you. So one of his biggest contributions was to the Horatio Alger Foundation. He, of course, received an award from them last year. It was a big part of his campaign trail message. It was also cited as one of the reasons why he skipped one of the uh, early Republican uh, debates before the primary. And he gave $250,000 and was listed as an Eagle sponsor for this year's awards. It was one of his only, uh, his, his most prominent public appearances since his defeat. And they got a cool quarter mill uh, from uh, from donors to Hersha Walker's campaign. So Patricia, I got to say the Hersha Alger Foundation with that lump of cash is my who's up for the week. That's about all the time we have for this show. Thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can count on new episodes to come out every Wednesday, every Friday, whenever news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia for the AJC. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. 
So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.